Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. We're studying verses 18 through 20 this morning. And the theme is victory in Jesus. The victory Jesus had in his sufferings. That's what we're talking about. It would look like Jesus lost and everyone else was a winner. That everyone else won. I mean, it looked like the like the Jewish leaders won. They kept taunting Jesus. You remember what they said? Save yourself. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Just come down from the cross. Remember that? It looked like the Romans won. I mean, after all, Pilate put that sign on the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews. He did that to mock the religious leaders. It looked like the people won. After all, Pilate did what he did and the religious leaders did what they did, but remember what the people did? Earlier in the week, they were shouting Hosanna to Jesus. And then five days later, crucify him. And they got their way. Finally, it looked like Satan won. The Prince of Peace was killed. The Son of Man was taken down. The one people called Savior was humiliated. And so Peter says, I need to clear the air. And the reason I'm going to show you the victory in Jesus' sufferings, he says, is because you, I mean, these people had become massively discouraged and they needed massive encouragement in their own sufferings. And he says, I know how to encourage you. You need to remember the victory that Jesus had in his sufferings. And we need that, you know, the lessons that come from that too, don't we? I mean, every day is the potential of great suffering in one direction or another, whether it's your own personal sin or just things that happen. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've noticed that this world is kind of breaking. It's not exactly fixed. It has cracks everywhere, and it seems that all of man's answers are nothing more than, you know, scotch tape. So we need this message. We need to know that there is victory in Jesus. Now, to get us back to where we need to be, let's read these verses. I'll read them aloud and you read them quietly. Verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I read something this last week that made me pause for a moment. It was a statement made by Martin Luther. I thought I would share it with you. Quote, A wonderful text is this. In a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means, end quote. And I thought, I have to preach that this Sunday. If Martin Luther doesn't know, Lord, help me please, you know. Well, after much study this last week, I will give my best shot. And I believe it is exactly what the Lord would have you hear. Now, we just need to let God's word speak. And I believe when we do, we'll, we'll all be greatly stimulated and blessed. All right. Now, as we work this through, Peter covers four areas. Giving us four reasons or four lessons on the victory in Jesus that we have from his sufferings, from how Jesus handled his sufferings at the cross and all the way to his ascension. Now, it's amazing, I will say, he just covers some unbelievable ground. And what I love about each stop that he has, and it's almost as though he goes, okay, let's take a few more steps here. Let's take just a few more steps here. Under each stop, he uncovers things that are unbelievable. Things that are like heaven opened up just for a moment for us to just have dropped down right on us, just little pieces of revelation that we would know nothing about had he not done this. It's incredible. All because he just wanted to encourage them in the sufferings that they were going through. Isn't that good? And so we go from the sufferings at the cross all the way to his ascension. First, he gives us, these here are the four lessons. First, a lesson from his unique death. Second, a lesson from his proclamation. Third, a lesson from the salvation that he accomplished. And fourth, a lesson from his exaltation. Each point connected to suffering, each point a statement of victory, each point a lesson for us. Last week we went over the first one. Victory in his sufferings from his unique death. His unique death. It is unique. Notice in verse 18 again, for Christ also died for sins. Look how unique it is. Once for all. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. And we showed you just how unique 
Christ's death was. He suffered in a way, not just that he suffered, but how he suffered in, in the way that he, how he suffered taught us. So it wasn't just that he suffered, it was how he suffered and all that was there to teach us. You see, he taught us about what? Well, here Jesus was suffering and he was in pain. And do you know what the, what the greatest pain was? Look at it. It says, died for sins. And then it says, just for the unjust. Sins were placed on him. And once that happened, now listen, the father forsook him. We will never be able to understand that, what that means in its totality, but we understand it in terms of what it means in its implication. What it means as the overflow to us. It's a substitutionary point, but to get to that substitutionary point, the Father had to forsake the Son, the One in whom they had eternal fellowship, never separated, ever. And as bad as any of our suffering will be, it will never be because we were sinless and bearing sin and receiving God's punishment for it, even though we were righteous. It will not be that. And it will not come to the place where it could match the forsaking that the Son went through from the Father. Why did He do it? He tells us. Look at it. To bring us to God. It's the only way to bring us to God. The just, the blameless one, for the guilty, for the corrupt, for the defiled. Why? Because that's the only way that he could get us to the holy God. By taking our place. The Father poured it on. See. So what made this, vic- this death a victory? That. That he could bring us to God. Now, before you think of it in your myopic sort of way, we always tend to think that way, like, hey, what does this have to do with me? You know, understand this had much more to do with God than us. It always does, doesn't it? In John 6, Jesus said, the ones that the Father has given to me, all that those ones, they will come to me. And so here's the picture. You have the Father, and He's given them to the Son, those ones to the Son. The Son is punished in their place, and then the Son brings them back to God. That's the picture here. Almost as though in the forsaking is the waiting. You see it? 
as he forsook, he then waited for the son to accomplish this substitutionary work to then bring us to God. To lead us. Talked about it last week. Like that introducer to the head. It's incredible. And I'll tell you, beloved, again, whatever you're suffering, if the Lord can use it to lead any person to become a Christian, isn't it worth it? Whatever it is. For Jesus, it was the cause of all the elect being brought to God in salvation. So there's a lesson in this that really is that lesson that helps us understand all that we do, all that we go through. I mean, if the Lord wanted us to just have you know, kind of to learn just a lesson about worshiping him, he would have just brought us straight to heaven. So there's got to be more to this. And that more to this is that he would use us to bring people to God. Now there's a second lesson in Jesus' victory and his sufferings. And it is a lesson, point number two, from his unmatched proclamation is unmatched proclamation. Now, our text starts to get harder from here on out. Okay? I, I, I talked to somebody this last week and said, it just didn't seem that hard. I'm not sure why you made it that, hard, hard, that, that big of a deal. Oh, wait till, you, wait till you get into this deal here. All I have to do is just ask you this question. Do you know who the Nephilim are? All right, there you go. You say, what does that have to do with anything? I, uh-huh, see? It has a lot to do with it. I'm going to get to it here in a little bit. But there you go. All right. Now, my point is the victorious proclamation. The suffering of Christ allowed him to have a victorious proclamation. And if you want to see this chronologically in a time way, Let me help you with this. The first point was about the suffering at the cross. Now we go from the cross to the time between the cross and his bodily resurrection. This is another sphere where Jesus had victory in his suffering. Notice in verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made it alive in the spirit. Now at first... Probably to you, this looks a little bit redundant. I mean, he already said Christ died for sins. Why say having been put to death in the flesh? Isn't that sort of saying the same thing? You just said he died. You're now saying he died again. Well, what Peter is doing... Yes, he's saying Jesus died physically. And you're saying to yourself, isn't that obvious? Yes, but what I want you to see here is the reason why he has to say it this way is so that he can make a a particular contrast. 
He wants us to understand something profound about his death that with our biological eyes, we would never see it. It's almost as though he was saying, yes, he died in the flesh, but keep looking and let me take you deeper. Let me take you into a place that you can't get to. He was made alive in the Spirit. Notice, not capital S Spirit. Some of your versions maybe have capital S, but I want you to know that I believe that the lowercase s is the better way to understand this. Now, there was a a real physical death. He died in the flesh. That really happened. It's... Sad that we have to make this point. I mean, in the, in the day of John, the, the apostle, he had to make this point because of the Gnostics. Remember John 19 and the spear to the side after Jesus died? Why was that important? It said the spear was thrusted in there because they couldn't believe that Jesus was dead so quickly. And it appeared like he really was dead most of the time when people were taken off of the cross, and by the way, they, what the Romans normally would do was just leave them on the cross and just let them die, however long it took. They didn't care. You could be, historically, you could read about this, where you could be walking along and on the side of a road see a person crucified on a cross on that side of the road, just dying, taking days to die however long it took. The reason why they had to take all three of them down was because of the Passover feast, and it would desecrate this Passover feast to have death, to have dead bodies there. So they wanted to make it pure, get them all down. So what they would do to make certain that the person, when they got them down from the cross prematurely, they would break their legs. And in the breaking of the legs, they would just die if they weren't dead yet. They didn't have to do that with Jesus. In just a few hours, he was just dead. Unbelievable. Water and blood flowed out, and that told them he's dead. Now, another thought here why they needed to do this. Scripture said, not a bone shall be broken. About Jesus, about the Messiah. But secondly, in John 10... I believe it had to be done this way because in John 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. You see, he willingly gave it away. So, nobody could say to Jesus that he didn't do that because he said that. This was a real physical death. Nobody could say, well, Jesus was just speaking metaphorically. No, 
When he said, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. He meant literally, physically, of his flesh. Died in the flesh. But what I want you to see here is that the reason why Peter says this, he says it to contrast being made alive in the spirit. You say, is that talking about the resurrection? Well, some people think so. I don't. There are lots of views about this, and I'm not going to go through them all with you. I'll give you my best shot about this. But it seems that Peter is just contrasting flesh and spirit. Not Holy Spirit, but the spirit of man. Okay? Human flesh versus human spirit. Follow that line of thinking. And I think you're going you're gonna to get this section pretty well if you do. Now, again, I, I have to say this because I can't tell you how many commentaries I read that, that made the point that this is talking. In fact, they would say it like this. Well, it's clearly talking about the resurrection. And I would say, clearly? Um, help me out here because it seems like there's a succession of thought, a, a flow. And when you say clearly, maybe I, 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 there's got to be something wrong with me because I'm not seeing clearly. I don't believe he's talking about resurrection. Let me help you out with this. I think I can give you strong proof that he was not talking about resurrection. Because he's already talked about resurrection and it didn't sound like this. Can I show you? Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 3. If Peter wanted to say resurrection in the spirit, he could have said it like this. Chapter 1, verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's pretty clear, right? He knows how to be clear. Or like chapter 1, verse 21. Who raised him from the dead. He used the actual word for resurrection. It's Peter's own word. Peter's not talking about bodily resurrection. He is talking about the spirit of Jesus being made alive. Now what's that imply? Listen. That it used to be not alive. Right? It was made alive. And it used to not be alive. Now if you're like me, kind of yeah, at that point you go, well, well, man, I, um, okay, no. I can't think that way because I can't think of anything about Jesus ever not being alive except his flesh. So what is that talking about? He said, I thought Jesus was eternal. That's right. So death to the flesh, made alive to the spirit of Jesus. His body was in the grave. His spirit was alive. I mean, it could mean that Jesus died spiritually. That's a possibility. So how do we understand all of this? What did Jesus mean by quoting Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, in Psalm 22, it's talking about separation. It wasn't talking about a, a, the, the stop of a spirit life 
but a kind of death where there is separation. I tend to think that that is what we're, we're seeing here. There was a certain kind of death at the spirit level that was then made alive. And I'm about to show you how crucial that is. It's going to blow your mind. It blew mine. And then we're just going to just let it be what it is. Death to the flesh, but the spirit made alive. And I believe why that's important is for us to understand that the flesh is still dead at this point. By the way, just a little later, what else did Jesus say on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. The Spirit then is what? Alive. You know what that tells me? Whatever that separation was, that was for judgment, that was for punishment, it had its effect... And Jesus could now say, my spirit is in your hands for him to do what? To make alive. Separation was only for a moment. Now God can receive his spirit because there's no separation. All right, let's work this through. I know you have a lot of questions. It's okay to have those, you know. Just keep working it through, right? That's how I do it. All right, so when when Jesus died on the cross, then where did his body go? Went to the grave, right? It's dead. Okay. Where did his spirit go? You say it went to the, uh, um, well, maybe, it, well, I think, you see how, we, how it works? We don't, you don't really have a good, clear understanding and answer that way, but I think that Peter wants us to have that. So we're going to work it through that way. It was made alive, I'll give it to you, after paying for sins, And it went somewhere. That's what Peter wants to talk about. Listen, that is what Peter wants to connect to victory. Not just a victory payment, but a victory pronouncement. A proclamation. Notice Jesus went somewhere, verse 19, in which also he went in the Greek. He went. And when you see that word there in the Greek, you should ask yourself, where did he go? The word went there in the Greek implies a particular place. And we would say he went somewhere. That's how we might use it in our vernacular. Verse 22, 
By the way, he uses the same word in verse 22, having gone, having went or gone into heaven to go somewhere else. That's what that word went means. And there was some purpose for Jesus' spirit. He had somewhere to go. He had an appointment, if you will. There's no judgment for his spirit. There's mission for his spirit. And by the way, the Latin word for what took place here, are you ready for this? Vivid, I'll go see if I can say this. I wish I was Latin. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, vivificatio is the word. And it means the time after Jesus died and before he manifested himself in a resurrected body at the grave. So they had this word in the Latin for this very thing. Vivificatio. So we are now studying that, the vivificatio. You can be Latin too. All right, there you go. So where did the spirit then of Jesus go after he died and before his bodily resurrection? Let's follow this. Verse 19, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The word proclamation is caruso. A lot of times it's translated preach. And oftentimes when we see preach, we think of, you know, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Sometimes we think preach the gospel. But understand something. With this word caruso, it always ha- it has to be, um, if you want to know exactly what is being preached or what is being proclaimed, it has to be attached to something. Preach the word. Preach the gospel. The word actually means to herald something, to announce something, to make a public proclamation or an official declaration of something, of something very important. I mean, the king, and what would happen is the king would send a, a trustworthy person and they would go to the gate and they would blow the horn and, and that would get people to kind of come and then he would make a proclamation. And in, what he was doing was this word, Caruso. Maybe alerting the start of a battle or other times to announce a victory. Now, I don't believe this word means preach like Jesus is giving the gospel or preaching a sermon. That's why I didn't even use that word. I could have used that word. I was looking for a P word, as you can tell. Preach is not the best word. Proclamation is. Proclaim. By the way, the word for, in the Greek, for to preach the gospel is euangelizo. It's where we get our word evangel or evangelize from. So this is a different word. Evangelizo means to declare the good news, to preach the gospel. This word is to make proclamation about something urgent and something vital. Evangelizo is positive for the hearer. Caruso sometimes was positive, but oftentimes negative. 
Many times it was a proclamation of judgment. If it was used positively, oftentimes it was to announce a victory. So we're talking about a time after the death, but before the resurrection. What did Jesus do? He went to proclaim something. To whom? What's it say? The spirits in the prison. Say, oh, okay. Amen. Thank you very much. It's great, right? You say, well, who are those guys? And what did he proclaim? Well, not evangelism. We already told you that. Not the gospel. He proclaimed victory. You say, what victory? Like I like to do a lot, I'll give you the answer, and then I will explain it. He went there to proclaim victory over Satan. Victory over the spirits. Victory over hell. Victory over darkness. Over the one who had struck him on the heel. He came there, he went there to say, he lost. That's what he came to say. And you remember the context is all about victory in the middle of unjust suffering. Now, as I was looking at the different ways the commentators handle this, I thought the questions that Wayne Grudem asked were very helpful to get answers from this text. Funny enough, I didn't agree with his conclusions, but I liked his questions. They were great questions, all right? Three questions with answers. First, let me give these to you. Who are the spirits in prison? And then he had three options. He said it could be, he said it could be unbelievers who have died and, and are now in a spiritual prison. It could be Old Testament believers who have died. Or it could be fallen angels, he said. Okay. Second question. So the first question, who are the spirits in prison? Second, what did Christ preach? It says he went there to proclaim. So what did he proclaim? I've already told you what I thought. But he says, uh, here are the different options, three options for that. Second chance for repentance. The completion of redemption work. Or final condemnation. And then we have this third question that he, that Wayne Grudem came up with. When did Christ preach? When? And here are the three options for that. It could be that he preached in the days of Noah. There's a view that says that. In fact, in that view, it says that Christ was preaching through Noah. So it was actually Christ preaching it, but Noah was the mouth. And he did this for 120 years and so forth. So that's one. Uh, a second part to that answer to that third question could be, maybe it was between his death and resurrection. And then a third one was after his resurrection. I'm going to see if I can answer all of those three main questions. Let's start with the first one. Who are the spirits in prison? Now, in verse 20, he calls the eight persons souls. And the word for soul here actually means people. It's a 
different word than this one. Here, it's the word spirit. And so it doesn't refer to people. It refers to spirits, not humans. I, I believe the word here, when it says spirits, has to do with angels. Now, angels are spirit beings. You remember, if you read through the Old Testament, occasionally the Lord um, lets them take on physical kind of form. Remember Genesis 18, Genesis 19? We even see them eating food. Okay? So, that, that can happen. You say, how do you know he has angels on his mind? Well, look at verse 22. Angels and authorities... And powers. And all of that are those are spirit beings. Angels, okay? I believe the best way to understand these spirits is to see them as demons. Jesus went to proclaim victory to demons after being made alive in the spirit, okay? Now, if you're like me, you're saying to yourself, why do you have to do that? I mean, why don't we just let them hear it for themselves, maybe in the news, I don't know. Why does he have to go to them? Well, remember, Jesus didn't preach the gospel to the demons. I mean, they could never be converted, right? So that, that's not what, it, what was happening here. The Bible doesn't teach a second chance, by the way, for anyone, especially demons. It doesn't teach about uh, second chance stuff. It doesn't teach purgatory. You say, so why would Jesus go and proclaim anything to demons? And why victory to them? And by the way, what are the demons doing in there anyway? Right? What is this prison? We're going to get to that here in a moment. So here's how I want to get to where I think we need to get to. Let's look at this thing historically. And I think we'll, 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 uh, we'll land this. Start at Genesis 3. All right, what happened in Genesis 3? Remember Genesis 3? Satan deceived the woman. The woman gave the fruit to the man. He rebelled and he ate it. Didn't want to live a single day outside of being married to this woman. So if she went down, he's going to go down with her. They'll figure it out. Sometimes you live silly that way. That's more than just silly. We call that the fall of man. God cursed mankind. He cursed the ground. He cursed everything, right? Including the devil. Remember what God told the devil in Genesis 3.15? I'll give you the short version. He said, there's going to be a war from here on out. And it is going to be between his seed, that is the devil's, and the woman's seed. Hold on to that thought. Super important. We're dealing with context here. 
God told the devil a future seed would crush his head. It would, 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 that is, would crush his kingdom, okay? So what's Satan do? Well, he makes it his aim from Genesis to Revelation to take down the kingdom of God, and we know that's just what he has tried to do. I mean, after all, in Colossians 1, salvation is described as being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, right? From the domain of one to the other. So there is this. It's true. And there's this battle, and you see the friction immediately in Genesis 4, right? Cain and Abel. God accepted one. He didn't accept the other. One was a part of righteousness. The other was not. And we see this. The Bible says that the devil has been a murderer from the beginning, and we see Cain killing Abel. So he's doing the devil's work. That's why you had Noah's flood. That's why you had the Tower of Babel. That's why you had Pharaoh killing babies. Listen, all of this is satanic activity trying to take down the seed, to eliminate the seed, all of it. Remember when Jesus was born? Right after, what did Herod want to do? Kill the babies. What does he say? Why go after the babies? Because he's only following what Satan wanted him to do. Why would Satan have him do that? To get rid of the seed. He is going to stop at nothing to be able to keep Messiah from coming to crush him. It's always been the battle of Satan after God's seed. Let me help you with this. 1 John 3.8 For the devil has has sinned from the beginning, it says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. Ever wonder, what does that mean? I'm, 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 I'm telling you. Because the devil has been after doing this age after age after age after age. And Jesus has come in the words of Matthew 12 to steal from the evil one. To bind, to strip away what the evil one has and bind the strong man. That's how it says it in Matthew 12. We're talking about souls. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, that is God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. Okay, regeneration. By this the children of God and the children of the devil. Boy, how do you get children? Through seed. Okay, so by this you got the children of God and you have the children of the devil. That's why this is so crucial, so vital. In fact, you can read about this unseen battle in 
Daniel 10 through 11. The devil has been after the seed and God's plan was not only to send the seed, but to destroy the works of the devil by getting his seed to abide in the ones that had the seed of the devil. That is to make children of devil into children of God. Daniel 10 through 11, as I mentioned, you got the spirits of evil battling the angels of God and Michael the archangel leading it for the good angels. And it's, and it's this battle. And, and, and in fact, it was actually a battle that had to do with there were these kings and people that were battling on the earth. And Daniel was given a vision to see the spiritual battle that was taking place behind this physical battle. And he almost dropped dead. He couldn't handle it. It was so alarming to him that there was actually a a battle going on like that at this satanic level against this satanic, uh, that is demons, against the angels of God. Made him nauseous. Always this battle for the seed. And so the devil trying to keep Genesis 3.15 from happening. In fact, you can see this even in the earliest book ever written in the Bible. You know what the earliest book? Job. Do you remember what happened in Job chapter 1? And what God said to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? Wait a minute. I mean... Can you imagine Job being out there? Why are you doing this? Don't tell him. Don't say anything. Maybe he hasn't, right? You see, God knew that Satan had considered him. But you know what Satan's response was? You put a hedge around that guy, you won't even let me get to him. He said, the reason why I haven't is because you protect yours. And that was the very thing. And the reason why the, the Lord dangled that one right before Satan is because he knew that is the very thing that he would want to do. Just get rid of the godly ones so that the seed will not be able to get through. And so it is, it is this fight against Christ from the beginning. Satan trying to keep Christ from accomplishing his mission. You say, what's his mission? We've already told you. First John 3, to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. And of course, at, at, at the death of Jesus, it looked like the devil had won. The demons won, evil won. All right, let's see if we can understand what this prison is. There's not a piece of scripture anywhere, by the way, that says humans can be locked up in it. Just spirits. Now to get uh, this, we need to understand just a little bit of angelology. Angel, I say, well, I mean, all kinds of words this morning. I know. Sorry, I got to give it to you. All right, we're going to get this. Angelology is, as it sounds, the study of angels. But by saying the study of angels, we mean this. There are two kinds of angels. There are good angels and 
evil ones, okay? They're, the Bible calls them, I think it's First Timothy 5, them elect angels. Elect angels. Now, the evil ones are the fallen angels. The good ones are those that minister for God. The evil ones are the ones that work for the devil. Now, you remember maybe a little bit of this history, but the evil ones came when Lucifer led a rebellion. Satan himself was a fallen angel named Lucifer. and He was so persuasive that he took a third of the angels with him in a rebellion against God, okay? And then of those evil angels called demons, you have two ways, two categories for them. You have loosed ones. First Peter 5 talks about and then you have bound ones. Two groups. You have the bound ones. Remember in Luke chapter 8, the man possessed with the many demons living in the tombs. Jesus comes and the demons cry out, I beg you, do not torment me. And what they, I mean, what are they talking about, by the way, when they said, do not torment me? Now, they're not saying, hey, don't be cruel. They're not trying to appeal to the mercy of Jesus. They're like, hey, be nice. We're, I mean, they're demons. Jesus asked them, you remember what their name was? And they said, Legion, because many demons had entered this poor guy. But watch this. Verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Abusas in the Greek. What does that mean? Abyss. Well, it doesn't say, but the name means the the dark deep. And it was a descriptive uh, similar to a prison. And what they were saying was, don't send us to the dark deep. Don't send us to the prison. parallel passage in Matthew 8, the demons say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Oh, there's a time? That's right. Where the demons that are bound in a prison are waiting a time of torment that will be even worse than the other demons. See, who are these spirits? How did they get to this place where they were in this prison? Verse 20. Look at 1 Peter 3.20. He tells us, Who once were disobedient. So these are disobedient demons. He said, aren't all demons disobedient? Yeah. But here's what he's saying here. This is implying a classification of disobedience that was unusual or different than the normal disobedience. So this implies 
something unusual even for them. So when were they disobedient? Verse 20 tells us. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Okay, what's that talking about? Let's find out. There are demons that are permanently bound because of some disobedience that took place during the days of Noah, okay? And they had limitations put on them. And they exceeded those limitations. And it said that God had patience. And they just and it just kept going. And then he put a stop to it. They went too far. All right. In order to historically get kind of what's going on, we need to kind of go back and understand Noah then. So what was Noah doing? He was building an ark, right? Second Peter 2 tells us preaching righteousness. And by the way, the 120 years is the length of time from the time that God wanted him to start building this ark to the time he was going to bring the flood. He preached for 120 years. Verse 20 says, During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now why did Noah build the boat? He said, because God told him to. Well, that's right. But what is this for? He says, isn't it for the animals? Yes. But, you know, it didn't didn't have to take 120 years. And in fact, I don't think it took 120 years for God to get the animals on on the boat. Implication when you read Genesis 6 and 7 is it happened relatively quickly when it was time for the animals to get on. See, maybe it took 120 years because Noah's a perfectionist or something like that. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of work. He's probably trying to figure out how to be a, you know, trade guy in construction and all that. Nope. I will tell you what I think based on Second Peter 2 and other passages. I think that the ark was a symbol it was real, and there were real animals, so they had a practical side to it, but it was more than that. It was a living object lesson. You say, of what? It was a sermon of gopher wood. It was a statement. It was a message. What kind of message? Judgment. It was a 120 year message on judgment that went like this. God is going to judge all this evil. In other words, He has not turned a blind eye on you. Listen, you will not get away with this. I mean, after all, there had not been any water on the land like this. He didn't even need a boat. So they... What could they possibly have understood by the boat? Nothing. Other than an extremely large and unusual house. And what you see from Genesis 6 is that the demons were just wreaking havoc. And it was a massive anti-God movement to flood out the seed. 
And so God said, I'll bring my own flood and stop this activity. And what you have on the earth, now listen, was a demon-saturated climate, a demon-filled culture that dominated everything so bad that in the New Testament it says when Jesus comes back, it will be like the days of Noah. Sometimes we think evil is so crazy right now in this this world. It's like, "Ah, it's bad. can get worse. We haven't yet hit the days of Noah. By the way, only two times that evil was as bad as it can get. Just before Jesus comes back and during the days of Noah. There were so many demons ravaging the people in those days that eventually, you know, God just had to drown them all out. He said, are you sure? Yeah, turn to Second Peter 2. I've got to show you this. You have to see this with your own eyes. And I only have a handful of minutes more to let you see this. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. Stop there. You see that word hell? That is not the word for hell. The normal word in the Greek for hell is either Hades or Gehenna. This word is the word Tartarus. It was Tartarus. Tartarus was a maximum security prison. Tight locked, heavy chained, extreme incarceration. Notice the timing of it. Verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the, 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 the world of the ungodly. See it? You say, were all the demons sent to this prison? No. Just some. Now, by the way, we even know a little of the flavor of their sin. In verses 6 through 8, it speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And so the demons were causing activity like that to dominate the land, the whole earth. Listen to God's summary of why he sent the flood as judgment to wipe out the whole world. We read it just before the message But I want you to get an idea of just how bad it was. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And it's like he keeps... He keeps repeating it because it was so unbelievably bad. By the way, as I was studying this, I kept seeing a reference to the book of Enoch. And that's because that was a a writing during the Old Testament, a non-biblical book written by a Jew, an apocryphal book. It's not scripture. But in it, you have this description of the times of Noah where demons 
came and ravaged the land. Isn't that interesting? Infiltrating with their evil on the earth. Talk about how God sent these... It talked about how God sent these demon angels to prison for their evil. So this was a common Jewish understanding. The reason why I bring up the book of Enoch's of Enoch. And I actually believe that Peter had that in mind. Let me show you one more passage from Jude to sort of drive this home. Turn there. It's a little little book before Revelation in case you kind of get, you know, you get a little finger, you know, uh, anxiety there. Left, right, left. Where am I going? Now Judah's trying to make the same point about Contending for the faith, contending for the truth given us from God, for the gospel, biblical truth. And he tells us, verse 4, some have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly persons marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly people trying to deny Jesus our only master. Now that implies that's a big issue. The Lordship of Christ. And to make his point, Jude gives us a history lesson. Now watch, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7. Just as. Underscore. Ju- what's that? That's a, that's a sim, sim, uh, simile here. Just as. Just like this. Like what? Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. How so? Since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Verse 7 is a reference to the time when two holy angels, remember this, showed up at Lot's house and uh, the people that were of the city came and they, they saw these two people go into Lot's house and they were protecting Lot because God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. And it says that the men of the city wanted to rape those angels. They didn't know they were angels. Would it have mattered? Tremendous evil. So you're talking about a time when evil angels went after strange flesh in a similar way as the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was that like? Turn back to Genesis 6. Jude uses the word porneia to describe this activity. It is the word which we get our English word pornography from, porn. And it just means sexual immorality, immorality of a gross kind, sexual Deviancy, start in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, 
that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, there are two views here predominantly of Genesis 6. One view is this is talking about a godly line of Seth going after worldly women so that God didn't want them, you know, women that God did not want them to go after. And so that what you have here are, you know, sort of a commingling of believer and unbeliever. And so what's made this time so bad is that God was concerned for this godly line. So he had to intervene. Now they're almost right, but they're not right. I don't believe. God does intervene. God is concerned about the seed. But I don't think that view makes any sense. I think it's a reach. You cannot demonstrate that view at all. You have to kind of go outside of that to see it. I mean, look at what their sin caused. Chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because... He also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. What he's talking about is they produced Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? Giants, unusual men of strength and violence. The book of Enoch called these hybrid babies. Babies of demons. That also had human quality. You see, where did they get that from? That view. And by the way, that would be, that doesn't make sense then to say that this is a connectness to the ungodly line of Seth. That makes no sense at all. See, so, so the commingling of believers and unbelievers, the lesson is they're going to create monsters? I don't think that's what he's saying. Though that's possible. That would happen. In a different way. Here's where they get that from. The thought that, that, that is Enoch and others... Look at the phrase sons of God. It's actually a reference to angels. You can read about it in Job. In fact, in Job, it's, it's demons, demon angels. So you put Second Peter 2, Jude, 1 Peter 3, plus Genesis 6 together, and what you get is this. Demonically produced offspring that bring a massive influence of evil at an unhinged level never seen before. Gross immorality, it says. A time of going after strange flesh. What's their strategy? This, to make man unredeemable. That's it. To make man unredeemable. I mean, if you can't redeem angels, then you need to make Mankind filled with an angelic quality so that man can be unredeemable. Remember the plan. Keep the seed from coming. And so Satan's plan is to pollute the earth with this and keep it from happening. 
Now, there are a number of interpretations, but this one, believe it or not, this one actually is uh, what I just shared with you is the original one. And then in the 400s, Augustine came around and with a different one. Genesis 6, he said, was Christ preaching through Noah to the ungodly mixed line of believers mingling with unbelievers. But it makes no sense with the rest of the text. I take it to be just what this says and what Jude and Second Peter say. You say, but how could demons come down and procreate with women? I don't know. But that's what it says. I'm not sure we need to understand how it could happen, but just that it did happen. I mean, why would God drown most of humanity if some of them were believers married to unbelievers? Or even most. He did it because all of humanity was corrupt except eight. Many think that there were millions upon millions of people living on the earth. How did the, 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 the corruption get there? Demons. But you know, the Lord has always been against the odds, by the way. He's, you just have eight. He's got eight here. Only at eight. He told Moses, I'll wipe this generation out and start a new one. He doesn't need numbers. He told Gideon, you have too many. Give me, give me less. Took 300 to fight thousands of Midianites. God always works with just a few. See, why does he do that? To get glory. To make it clear that he is God and our work will not do. That we need him, all of him, all the time. So the demons left their natural state, came down to somehow cohabitate with women, create this ungodly climate. They must have been able to, I think, possess humans to do it. We know later on during the time of Christ that they do possess humans. See, what's the point? This, that at some level these demons could say, we won. And the devil has convinced them that they would win. Even after these demons were thrown into prison, they were convinced they would eventually win. In fact, maybe at the death of Christ, they thought Satan is coming next to release them from this state. See, so why would God leave them there to be an object lesson? For what? Last place I want you to turn and we'll be done here. Colossians 2. Verse 14. There were decrees against us, statements of sin, which was hostile to us, and he had taken it out of the way, having nailed it to 
the cross. All right, that's the focus, the work of work on the cross of Christ. Verse 15. When, that's a time word, time word, right? The work of the cross triggered the next thing. He had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who's that? It's another word for demons. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Listen carefully. 1 Peter 3.19 is the public display. It is the triumph over the demons. 1 Peter 3.19 is a proclamation then to the demons in prison. You lost. I won. It is finished. Game over. That's the victory. This is the reason why Ephesians 6 can speak of the armor of God and being able to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The reason why we can put on the full armor of God, why we can struggle against the world forces of this darkness, against powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places because Jesus went to the spirits now in prison and proclaimed victory. It's not a purgatory where souls are waiting for a second chance. It's not him going to make a payment to the devil so that he could accomplish salvation. It is a place where evil almost won but lost and Jesus proclaimed victory so that we can have victory in our sufferings. I have more in my notes. We need to pray and be done. Amen? Lord, thank you for the victory. And Lord, I pray that we could understand this. I know there's a lot about what we just studied that we don't understand. But thank you. Thank you. for being our Savior, for being our victor. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember this in any of our times of suffering. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.